It's good for us to remind ourselves of these big themes going through the book of Hebrews and just to understand all over again that this was a letter written to discouraged Christians. This was a letter written to those who felt like giving up. And there are many reasons and the sort of scattered throughout the letter of the Hebrews as to why they felt like giving up. But that's sort of the basic scenario and an attempt to get them to persevere, to, to not only hang in there and you could say to survive in their Christian life. The writer of Hebrews wanted them to go all the more with strength and with vigor to pursuing what God had for them in an effort to do all of that. He brings forth a lot of reasons. He tries to tell them that Jesus is greater than Moses, that the Old Testament system was passing away. He brings out this reason and the other reason. And one of the great reasons why he brings out intended to encourage these discouraged Christians is he brings out the idea that we have a high priest in heaven. Jesus exalted, seated at the right hand of God, the father, and that Jesus himself is our sympathetic, our compassionate high priest. Well, that connects with many other ideas that the writer of the Hebrews wants to demonstrate to his readers, including ideas having to do with the nature of the priesthood of Jesus. And without getting too far afield, and I'll just say it, even if you don't get it, we'll explain it in later chapters. But the idea that there was a priesthood according to Aaron, the first of the priests, the brother of Moses. And then there was another priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, this amazing character that just sort of streaks across the sky of the Old Testament. And he intended to explain more about this business of Aaron and Melchizedek and their respective priesthoods and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. But then he realized that there was something not quite right in the hearts and the minds of those that he was writing to. And that's where we come to Hebrews chapter five, starting out verse 11, where he says, of whom we have much to say, by the way, the whom there is Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You see, this explains why, at least at this point in the letter to the Hebrews, he's not going to continue the discussion of the high priesthood and Melchizedek and Aaron and all the other things. Now, don't worry, that's a fascinating subject, and he'll come back to it in Hebrews chapter 7. But for the time being, he says, I'm not going to go deeper into that discussion of the high priestly character of Jesus and all that he does until I address some issues in your own walk with God. And most pointedly, I want to address the issue that you become dull of hearing, that there's something not so sharp anymore in your faculty, in your ability to hear what God says. It's as if this God is speaking, but you're not hearing. You used to hear better. By the way, that's sort of inherent in the phrase there. You have become dull of hearing. You used to be sharper. You used to hear God better. You used to be more attentive when the word was being taught. And it just seemed to produce more benefit. You seemed, if I could just, you used to get more out of it. And, and maybe you could say, well, you don't get as much out of it because the preacher isn't as good as he used to be. Well, that may very well be so. But still doesn't take away the fact that there's an element of sharpness of hearing that God wants us to have when it comes to spiritual things. And if we don't have that sharpness of hearing, there's a limit to how far we can go to what we can actually receive from God. And so, therefore, the writer of the Hebrews now and in the whole section we're going to take a look at this morning, he's warning them. That's what it is. It's a warning. And I just want you to be very aware of this fact, this dynamic in our following after Jesus Christ, that from time to time we need to be warned. Now, we need a lot of things, don't we? We need to be comforted. We need to be assured. We need to be strengthened. 
We need to be built up in faith. We need all of those things. But don't we from time to time need to be warned? Don't you need from time to time somebody to just look you square in the eye and say, this isn't good. You need to do better. And if you don't, there's consequences. That's the spirit of what we're taking a look at here in this passage. He's told them, you've become dull of hearing. And now he's going to continue on the thought into verse 12 where he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. In other words, he takes a look at the rate of progress in their Christian experience. And he says, you know, really, by this time, you should be so much farther along. You should be teachers by now. Now, I don't think for a moment that he says you should be teachers in the sense that each and every Christian should be able to stand on a platform and teach other people the Bible. No, I don't think so. If that's not your calling, that's not your calling. But, you know, some of the best and most important teaching that goes on in the Christian world, it doesn't happen from a platform to people who hear. It happens as people just talk about the things of God one to another. It talks about how somebody just shares what God is teaching them. It talks about how somebody just shares what God has done in their life. And every one of us should be able to teach one another, at least in that sense. By the way, that's a very powerful and sometimes the most effective way that Christians are taught. It's in that very relational one on one where I'm just sharing or you're just sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, every one of us should come to the place where we're capable of that. Every one of us should be able to just simply explain what God is showing us in the scripture and how it's impacting our life. In that sense, every one of us should either be at that place or working towards this place. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, as he looks at the people who's reading this letter, his original audience, he said, you should be there by now, but you're not. This brings up a very important issue as we think about this idea of the Christian life. It's that we should be making continual progress in our Christian life. In other words, the person who has been following Jesus for 10 years should be further along in their experience, in their knowledge, in their relationship with Jesus. After 10 years, you should be further along than someone who's been there after two years. I mean, think about it. It's not like that with everything in life. Uh, there you were. You were 16 years old and you were in driver's ed. And you got your license and you pretty much learned how to drive. You're probably, regrettably, probably pretty much the same driver you are now as you were at 17 or 18. I mean, you just, things like that, they don't change a whole lot. You just, okay, you're this. It's, it's not like you're continually taking courses to improve your driving capability. You're not thinking about it. You drive. I learned how to drive and now I drive. Okay, the end of the story. It's not like that with the Christian life. There should be a sense of continual progress being made. But it's not like that for everybody. But I dare say it's probably not like that for everybody in this room. I heard it said of somebody. I thought this was such a wise, insightful statement. A little strong. So it kind of took me aback, but I think it was true. A man I know it said of another man. He said, he hasn't been a Christian for 10 years. He's been a Christian for two years, five times over. In other words, yeah, there's 10 years on the calendar. But there's not 10 years worth of maturity. It's as if he's still a two-year-old in his walk with God. That's not right. There needs to be a sense in the Christian life where we're continually challenging ourselves to continually make progress in our following of God. That's what God has for you. And I'll tell you, that's what he has for me too. It's not as if, oh, now I'm a pastor. 
oh, now I stand on a platform and talk to people. Well, that's enough progress for me. No, it's not the way for any of us. There's this idea that there should be this continual progression. But it wasn't that way for the original readers. It says here at the end of verse 12, and you have come to need milk, milk representing perhaps those basic things of the Christian life, which are not bad. We're not trying to say it at all. Oh, you know, forget about the milk. It's just the stronger thing. No, but there are certain things in the Christian life that are deeper, that are further. It's not some esoteric, hidden mysteries, secret knowledge that, you know, you have to learn a secret handshake in order for me to tell you about them. There's nothing like that in the Christian life. But yet it's as if these basic things, we find a way to delve deeper in them, to delve further in them, to understand them. This basic truth, I'm a sinner. That's a basic truth in the Christian life, isn't it? But 10 years on in the Christian life, you should know that deeper and you should know it better. Jesus is a savior. That's a basic truth, don't you think, in the Christian experience? 10 years on in, you should know it deeper. You should know it better. And then there's just this dynamic of being able by the progression of years and not being limited in this endless cycle of living the same Christian life two years at a time over and over again. Now, he's going to continue on this thought in the verse 13 and 14. Look at it here with me. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, to become a babe, for someone to be like a little baby over and over again in their Christian life, it's just wrong. There's something wonderful about Chloe, a young little baby, appropriate for her years. But listen, listen, for someone to be 16, 17 years old and to be of the same nature of a baby, that's weird. That's abnormal. There's something wrong with that. And friends, this is what he's saying. He's saying you shouldn't be like these babes. You should progress on. And one of these measures of not being like a babe, look at it right there in verse 13, is that a person is unskilled in the word of righteousness. One way that those who have become like babies reveal themselves is because they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. We don't expect people who first come to Jesus to be skilled in God's word, but we expect those who have walked with the Lord for a while to be skilled in God's word. And it's connected with this idea of solid food, of greater maturity. And connected with it also is a very interesting phrase that he uses there where he says, notice it there in verse 14, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I think that's a fascinating phrase in verse 14 because he's not talking about our physical senses. He's talking and using the analogy of our physical senses to communicate things that are in the spiritual uh, world, in the spiritual realm. Now, as soon as I start talking about the spiritual realm, it makes me feel a little strange talking to a great group of people about that. Because this is something that our culture is so out of touch with. But really, it's a reality. Do you understand that there's a spiritual world out there? that we are in contact with all the time, that there is a spiritual environment in this very room or in your home or all around you, and you connect, you interact, that spiritual environment has an effect on you, and you in some measure have an effect on it, and you can't see it with your physical eye or perhaps hear it with your physical ear, but it's real and it's around you nevertheless. 
If somehow the spiritual reality of what was happening in this room right now could become visible to our spiritual eyes, our physical eyes, I think we'd be astounded. We would see, and I don't want to sound all weird about this, but wouldn't we see angels present in this very room? Aren't they interested in the gatherings of Christians for worship? Don't they attend us? Has not God sent them forth ministering? And I think our minds would be blown. We would see angels right here in our midst. And... Again, again, I don't want to sound strange about this, but would not we see a few perhaps demonic spirits here sent to distract, to harass, to 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 take away from whatever good work that God wants to do? Would we not sense something different in individuals, something that God or, or, or that malevolent spirits would be doing in them and around them? And look, let's face it, we can't perceive this with our physical eyes, but it's real. Nevertheless, now we live in the midst of a culture. We live in the midst of a world mindset that says all around us that the only world that matters is the world you can see. I'm here to tell you that the Bible says that's a lie. And the Bible tells us that, in fact, the most important world that we interact with is this spiritual world. Yet, wouldn't you agree that most people live their lives completely dead to this world? Uh, This summer, my wife and I on vacation, we went snorkeling. A lot of you have done that. It's really fun, isn't it? And it struck me that one of the mind-blowing things about snorkeling is you go under the water, you got the mask, you're all there with your flippers and everything, and you realize there's a whole world under here that exists that I never knew about. Wow, isn't this amazing? Ladies and gentlemen, there is a whole world in the spirit that you may be completely insensitive to, but just because you're insensitive to it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's all around you. Now, here's the thing. God gives us senses by which we can interact with the spiritual world. You have physical senses by which you interact with the material world, don't you? You have sight, you have hearing, you have taste, you have all these other things. And I find it fascinating that there is some analogy between our physical senses and spiritual senses. For example, we have a spiritual sense of taste. The Bible says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. He didn't mean for you to lick your Bible. But there's a sense in which we can taste. Now, again, you understand it's speaking sort of with a metaphor. But the idea is the same. There's a spiritual sense of taste. You could say that there's a spiritual sense of hearing. He says in the Bible, uh, Jesus did to the church's revelation. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He's appealing to the spiritual ear, which, again, is analogous to our physical or material ear. We, We have a spiritual sense of sight. The psalmist said, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Again, he's not referring so much to his physical eyes to where he could read the scroll, but something beyond that. And I've just got such a a burden, such a hunger in my heart that we as a people of God would become awakened all over again to a life in the spirit. That we would realize that, yes, we live in a material world, but isn't it beautiful that we can come here and get something together in the community of God's people gathering that you're not going to get anywhere else. Look, you cannot watch a movie and listen to somebody far more entertaining and interesting, perhaps, than me speaking to you now. But I'll tell you what I could give you that they can't. I can put you in touch with the spiritual world. Uh, uh, we have something as the body of Christ collectively that you can't get anywhere else. It's a legitimate, pure, powerful, 
real interaction with the world of the spirit. And these senses to be able to perceive the spiritual world, notice how they are developed. First, he says that these spiritual senses are exercised. That's the phrase that they're trained by practice and habit. In other words, the more you seek to interact with the spiritual world, the way God tells you to. Now, I I don't want to get off onto a big, you know, uh, uh, detour here. Had to think of the word. I don't want to get off on a big detour here, but we need to understand that not all of the spiritual world is good and pure and godly. There is a evil, a malevolent spiritual world out there as well that we are forbidden to interact with because it will destroy us. It'll eat us up. But but assuming here that I'm talking about a godly interaction with the spiritual world that God gives us to interact with through Jesus Christ and through the revelation of the Bible. First of all, we, we need to just exercise that and interact with it more and more. Secondly, these spiritual senses become exercised as they are used. Notice the phrase there. It says by reason of use. That's how you. The the more faith you exercise, you'll gain more faith. The more spiritual sight you exercise, you'll gain sharper spiritual eyes. The more you listen to the word of the spirit in and through his word, you'll get a sharper sense of hearing. But then thirdly, I'd say this, that these spiritual senses should be able to discern both good and evil. In other words, we'll be able to know what's true and what's false, what's light and what's dark, what's good and what's evil. And this ability to discern is one critical marking point of those who are spiritually mature. People who are immature spiritually don't have a well-developed sense of discernment. How about this? A baby will put just about anything into its mouth. And that's how it is with people who are spiritually babies. They'll just put anything into their mouth. Now, they may spit it out pretty quick or maybe not. But again, they don't have that discernment ahead of time. Now, flowing into chapter 6... He's going to continue the thought and continue to challenge them where he says this. And I'm just going to read the first half of chapter six, uh, of verse one, rather, of chapter six, where he says this. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. He says, "Okay, we've talked about these things that sort of correspond with milk. We've talked about these elementary principles. We've talked about these basic things. And let's move on from this. Matter of fact, I love the attitude there, first of all. First of all, understand this. When he says, let us go on to perfection, he's not trying to imply that somehow you can be brought to a place of sinless perfection in your life. That's not going to happen. And if anybody here thinks you've already achieved it, why don't you come up and talk to me afterwards? Better yet, why don't you let me talk to your husband or wife afterwards and we'll confirm that this isn't the case. I mean, we're not looking to come to some place of sinless perfection. No, actually, the idea behind that ancient word that we translate perfection there, the idea is much better understood by the word maturity. The idea is completeness. And completeness isn't necessarily what we might think of as perfection in every element, but there's just a sense of completeness, of maturity, of appropriate development. So this is just basically the idea. He says, he says, let's leave these things behind. Let's press on to appropriate maturity. But I love how he does this. He's not going to treat them like a bunch of babies. Okay, you're stunted in your spiritual progress. You say that, that, that all you're interested in is these basic elementary things. Okay, I get that. But I'm going to pull you along into maturity. I think that's a beautiful attitude for a pastor or a teacher to have towards a congregation. Where, where somebody perhaps might be 
lagging behind in their spiritual maturity. The idea isn't to flog them and tell them how horrible they are. No, the idea is to say, all right, now let's come along. I'm not going to treat you endlessly like a babe. Let's come along and with, hopefully with pastoral wisdom and grace, that person is brought along and is brought deeper into Christian knowledge and experience all along the way. Now, let me read again, starting at verse 1, but continuing on through verse 2. Ready? Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. In other words, he says, these are some of the elementary principles that we want to go beyond and not remain, so to speak, stuck in. And with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, begins one of the most controversial passages of the entire New Testament. So we're going to consider the beginning of this passage this week, just up to verse 3. And we're going to get into the most controversial aspect of it next week. Next week, that's where the real fireworks begin. And part of me is like, yes, can't wait. Let's get into it. Because I think God really has something to teach us through it. But listen, in these first three verses of Hebrews chapter 6, I think God speaks something so powerful, so challenging, so important for you and I to hear that it's really on my heart that we should understand this together. I want you to look again at verses 1 and 2, and I want you to notice that he makes a list, does he not? He lists, as a matter of fact, six things. What are the six things that he mentions? Well, uh, repentance from dead works, the resurrection of the dead, faith towards God, eternal judgment, the laying on of hands and baptism. Six things altogether. Now, I understand that I just read them to you a little bit out of order. I had a reason for doing that. So hold tight with that. But then there's six reasons, six things that he lays down there. Now, I know people who with the best of intentions, and I'm not trying to criticize their intention or their heart at all. But there are people who say, look. Hebrews tells us that these are six foundational principles for the Christian life. So let's take a look at these six foundational things and we'll do a new believers course with these six topics. Now, I understand that, but I have to say, I don't think that that's the correct approach to this passage. I don't believe that the writer of the Hebrews was saying these are the first six things that you need to understand if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And can I just tell you one reason why? If you take a look at that list, can anybody notice something sort of conspicuous missing from it? Um, Jesus. The cross. How about that? I mean, there's no direct reference. I mean, you could sort of tangentially get there, but there's no direct reference there to the person or the work of Jesus. So I don't think that he was trying to say these are the first six most important things that anybody should learn if they're going to follow Jesus, the foundational things, then what did he mean? Well, again, I want you to look at that list and I want you to think through it. And I want you to ask yourself, what on this list is not also shared in Judaism? Because please remember, he did not write this letter to Christians from a pagan background. He wrote this letter to Christians from a Jewish background. These were Christians who were in their social circle and the people around them who didn't know Jesus, they still had a Jewish background. So we have to read it in that context, in that framework. Now, what on this list does not connect with Judaism? For example, does Judaism have the doctrine of repentance from dead works? Absolutely. Does Judaism have the doctrine of of resurrection of the dead. Yes. 
Faith toward God? Yes. Eternal judgment? Yes. Laying on of hands? Yes. It was part of the Levitical system. Now, you might be saying, and this is why I changed the order just a little bit. Saying, David, I've got you at baptisms. Baptisms is something that's distinctively Christian and not directly practiced in Judaism. And then I would respond, aha, I'm glad you asked that. I've got the perfect answer. What's very interesting about this list is the ancient word that's translated baptisms in the text. It's not the normal word for baptisms used in the New Testament. Not at all. Matter of fact, that word could be more accurately translated. And it is this way in some versions. If you have an ESV version in front of you, you'll see what it says. It doesn't say baptisms. It says ceremonial washings or something very similar to that. Because that's the word that he used. Now, let me ask you this. Did Judaism have ceremonial washings? Absolutely so. You see, this is what I'm getting at. Is what he's describing in these six things are not distinctively Christian doctrines, not the basics of a distinctively Christian life. It doesn't mention the cross or Jesus at all. But what he's mentioning here are six things that are true in Christianity, but they are also true in Judaism. It represents some of the common ground between Christianity and Judaism. Well, what's the point of this? What's the idea? Why is this even important? Friends, I hope you follow with me on this because I think this is so important for us today. I want you to have this concept in your mind of Christianity and Judaism. Think about them. You could think about them, and we'll have a graphic for you, as two circles. Okay, there's the circle of Christianity and the circle of Judaism. Now, I just want you to think in your mind, do Christianity and Judaism share certain doctrines? Of course they do. They're not like two separate circles that don't meet. Matter of fact, there is overlap between the two, is there not? Now, there are some things that are distinctive to Judaism and not found in Christianity. And there are some things that are distinctive in Christianity and not found in Judaism. But there is a healthy overlap. Every one of those six things that he lists in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, every one of those six things is found in that overlap. It's found in the middle ground. And do you see what these ancient discouraged Christians were doing? Because they were discouraged, because they were being persecuted, they were tempted to retreat back into an inoffensive middle ground. Nobody would persecute them for preaching repentance from dead works because the Jews preach that as well. Nobody would persecute them for preaching the resurrection of the dead because the Jews preach that as well. Nobody would persecute them for preaching uh, doctrines of baptisms because they practice their ceremonial washings as well. The temptation was to retreat into a safe, common ground encompassed by both Judaism and Christianity. You say, well, what's the problem with that? So big deal. Those things are still Christian. Why not just emphasize that? I'll tell you, because there's something that's pretty important that's not in that common ground. What is it? The cross, the cross lies outside of that common ground. And if you say so that I don't offend anybody, I'm going to retreat back to an inoffensive common ground. What you've done is you may keep some things that are still Christian. But what have you denied? You've denied the things that are distinctively Christian, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did for us, in particular, what he did for us on the cross. Now, you might agree. Okay, David, I get it. Fascinating anthropological study of the correlation between Judaism and Christianity, ancient world. Great. I get it. Now, I want you to understand this is for right now. This is for today. How? 
Okay, think of that chart that we put up before. And I want you to think of instead of the circles reading Judaism and Christianity, the circles now read modern culture and Christianity. Now, modern culture has its values. The spirit of the age has the things that are important to it. The spirit of the age has its own doctrines, has its own teachings. They don't call them that, but that's what they are. And do you understand that between the spirit of the age and Christianity, there's some overlap. There are some things that are important to the spirit of the age today that are also important to Christianity. How about this? The culture says we should all love one another. Does not Christianity say that? It's true, isn't it? Christianity says that we should love one another. Uh, The culture says we should help one another and do things for people who aren't advantaged. We should help disadvantaged nations and disadvantaged people. Does Christianity say that? Absolutely it does. But here's the problem. If you pretty much live your whole Christian existence in that safe middle ground so that you don't offend anybody from our culture, then you've lost your distinctive Christianness. And that's a price that's too high for us to pay. And so what we do is we recognize, yes, the Bible tells us that we're to love one another, of course. Yes, the Bible tells us that we're to help people wherever we can, whoever's disadvantaged. We should be seeking to do good works all over this world, but we will never let go of those distinctive truths, even if we're mocked for it, even if the world hates us for it, even if we're rejected for it. No, we're going to hold high the banner of who Jesus is and what he did for us and not retreat to an inoffensive common ground. Ladies and gentlemen, the temptation to do that in the modern world is very powerful. As a matter of fact, I would say that there's two great temptations that face us. The first temptation is for Christians to retreat into this inoffensive common ground. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means to love one another. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to help people. Great. The cultural say, okay, wonderful. I have no problem with that. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to repent of your sins and to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and to recognize him as Lord and Master. Suddenly the culture goes, ah, you can't say that. But we say, no, that's what the whole message is. So the first temptation is to retreat into this inoffensive common ground, and we must not do that. Listen, we live in a culture, and it's hard to say I'm going to go full bore after Jesus and I'm going to be distinctively Christian. And there is a price to be paid for that. I pray that God will help you and myself to be courageous and willing to pay that price. That's the first temptation. But, you know, there's a second temptation. You know what the second temptation is? It's to say that if it's in the common ground of things that the culture accepts or likes, well, then we can't have anything to do with that. In other words, loving other people? No, that's what the world says we should do. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, Helping the disadvantaged? No, you know, that's just social programs. We're not going to do that. No, the bottom line is we're not going to let our agenda be set by the culture one way or another. If the Bible tells us that we should love one another, we're going to do it. Sometimes the culture will say yes. Sometimes the culture will say no, it doesn't matter to us. We're going to do what's right. If the Bible tells us that we should help the disadvantaged, it doesn't matter if that's faddish to do in the culture or not. It doesn't matter to us. We're going to do it because the Bible tells us to do it. And where the culture says, great, gives us a thumbs up, well, then fine, we're good with that. Where the culture says, no, you're crazy for doing that, then we'll accept the title and we'll go on doing our father's business. You see how powerful this is? 
You see how much this relates, not just to first century Christians living in a Jewish environment. It relates to us today. Let's take a look at verse 3, and we'll conclude with this. Verse 3, very simple, shortest verse of the morning. And this we will do if God permits. Now, I don't think for a moment he's trying to say God might not permit it for some people. No, I think God permits it for all. What it is, is this is an expression of saying we can only do this with God working in us. My heart goes out to the discouraged, disillusioned follower of Jesus Christ. You, you, you have not lost the faith. But maybe it's hanging by a slender thread. I would almost tell you, it's not within you to hang on to Jesus. You have to look to him and put your trust in him all over again and say, Jesus, would you hang on to me? I see it with my mind that I've been retreating into an inoffensive common ground. And instead, I want to live a full and faithful Christian life. God, would you work that in me? I cannot do it on my own. You pray that prayer, I think he'll answer. So why don't I pray it on behalf of all of us right now? Here we are, Lord. It'd be easy to sort of exaggerate our spiritual maturity or accomplishments. But Lord, in our heart of hearts, while we thank you for whatever maturity you have worked in us, we recognize, Lord, I think everybody in this room, that there's more for us to do. There's deeper places for us to go. There's spiritual senses that need to become sharper and sharper. Jesus, I just know that that's never going to happen in my life or in anybody's life here by retreating into that safe, common ground. Instead, Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen me and everyone in here to live a full and faithful Christian life as genuine followers of Jesus. Not lovers of the present age, though we live in it. Teach us not to love it. Rather, more than anything, be identified by a love for you. Because we do love you, Lord. We find ourselves in that same place of the man who said to you, Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's as if we pray this before you, Lord. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.